The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Good morning again, church. My name is Kelly Graham. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and it's a joy to be here with you. What a fantastic time last week was, right? Yeah? It was great worshiping with you outdoors at Runnymede and then having a picnic afterwards. Thank you for coming, thank you for worshiping, and thank you for chowing down with us. The food was fantastic. Good job, guys. Um, It was a great time. But this week, uh, we're continuing through the Gospel of Luke, and we've reached a story Jesus tells about... uh, about how we should be prepared for his return. And if you're not familiar, I feel like it's helpful to just you know, give a parenthesis here so you know what the work of Jesus is at the very beginning. If you're not familiar with the work of Jesus, he's the divine son of God whose earthly ministry climaxed in his death on a cross for the sins of the world, then leading to his resurrection from the dead, death, dead from the dead, defeating death, but then he, was, he ascended into heaven. But before he ascended, he promised that he would return to make all the wrong things right in the world and to judge mankind's eternal destination according to our faith in Jesus. But interestingly enough, we will all be judged on our works and we will have to give an account for our actions that we did. Now, our works don't save us, but we will give an account. Today, We'll be talking about how we can be prepared for his return and for the coming judgment. But before we get into the text, I want to share with you two contrasting stories of return and judgment. First, we have a sweet dog in our home named Scout. Scout's a golden doodle. And she has the softest fur you could possibly imagine. And she's the most affectionate, affectionate dog that we've ever had. Affectionate to a fault, I would say. She has no boundaries uh, and understanding of personal space. And one really nice thing about her is that even though she's a scaredy cat, literally, she has a vicious sounding bark and growl. It's completely incongruent with reality, but I like it that way. It's kind of nice. When we leave our home, you can be assured that our home is relatively safe from intruders because she remains vigilant, peeking out the curtains. The problem is, she's anxious. So when we've been gone too long for her standards, she starts looking for things to get into as a way of showing her disapproval of our absence. One time she found her way into our cabinets, opened our pantry and our trash can, and she ate a pack of Ritz crackers, most of a bag of almonds, a loaf of bread, and a number of granola bars. (laughs) When we arrived home, she knew exactly what she did. Isn't that funny how dogs know exactly what they did? She knew exactly what she did. And her gangly legs like crouched down to the ground and she scooted on her belly just waiting for the coming judgment of what would happen. In contrast to that, I have a not-so-soft-and-furry son named Hunter. And sometime after Hunter turned 12, Carissa and I experimented with taking a date by ourselves in the evening time and allowed Hunter to watch his younger siblings. 
Now, our daughter is only 16 months younger than, than Hunter, and our kids are generally, generally responsible, but I wanted Hunter to experience a new level of responsibility that the other two had not experienced yet, so I let him watch the other two, and he was allowed to stay up after their bedtime until we got home, like any good babysitter would do, right? He was a tad nervous about dealing with his siblings, but he was up for the job, weren't you, buddy? Yep. He did his work well. He stayed up and watched some of his favorite shows after the other's bedtime, and then when, he came, when we came home, he heard Carissa and I pull up, and he opened the door with a big, proud smile on his face. He knew what he had done. He knew he had done well. He was vigilant, even diligent, and he was ready for the time that we would return, which was relatively late. And today's text gives a similar contrast with much more serious consequences. It's always fun to preach texts that have kind of a positive tone to them, but today's text has a growing severity and tension to Jesus' lesson. Church, we need this scripture. I need this scripture. I've been heeding Jesus' warning from today uh, all week as I've been studying it more than I think I consciously have normally done. And I trust that the Holy Spirit will work a similar response in each one of our hearts. Sometimes we just need a, re, a, a, a sobering reality to jolt us out of our plotting days into a renewed and even appropriate urgency, right? So let's turn to Luke 12, verses 35 through 48. Luke 12, 35. Through 48. If you're using the Bible from the back of the seat in front of you, it's going to be on page 871. It'll also be on the screens if you just want to look up there. But Luke 12, 35 through 48, hear the word of the Lord. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door for, to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say, you, I, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this that the master of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give their, them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find him so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servant, servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant 
who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand all the more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, this is a uh, sobering passage. Help me to explain this truth in faithfulness. I pray that you would prepare all of our hearts as, we're heard, as we are taught this, this truth, this story, this parable, and teach us to be faithful, diligent, vigilant servants. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Well, at the time of this story when Jesus told it, Jesus is on his last trip to Jerusalem, knowing that the cross is ahead of him. And as a result, it seems that Jesus is drilling down into some serious subjects that need to be addressed along the way before he leaves. As a matter of fact, judgment is a big theme in chapters 11 and 12. This passage is an exhortation. It's a warning, in other words. It's meant to be heavy. It's meant to be jarring. And if you've been attending Pastor Greg's class on Wednesdays about interpreting the scriptures, you might remember that we need to pay close attention to emotionally charged language. And we're going to have to implement that skill today. The story Jesus tells is a parable. And a parable, by definition, is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I like that definition. I read that this week in, uh, from Easton, a theologian. And Jesus told quite a lot of parables in his ministry to convey a heavenly meaning with normal, everyday life illustrations. So just so we're clear on this parable, let me summarize this parable in our own language just so we can understand it really well before diving in. Today's parable is about servants who need to be ready for the master of the house when he returns home from a wedding banquet, and we are the servants. We are the hearers of this parable, the servants, okay? The servants don't know when, uh, when the master will return, so they need to be ready at all times, even late into the night. And Jesus reveals that he's talking about the day when he will return after leaving for an unknown period of time. Jesus is the master of the house. And when Peter uh, asks if it's just the disciples who need to be ready or if it's everyone, Jesus clarifies. Jesus describes the disciples and teachers as managers of the servants. They're still servants, but they're managers who feed and care for the other servants. They need to be ready too. If they start to goof off or worse, if they disobey their master's command outright, there will be dire consequences. And the master will dis discipline the managers and the servants relative to the degree which they knew his commands, even punishing those who did what was wrong but were ignorant of the master's will. The disobedient manager could find himself cut into pieces and placed with the unfaithful. That's how serious this is. But to those who were ready, the master 
remarkably trades places with them and serves them instead. Can you sense the urgency that Jesus is instilling in the listener? Do you see how Jesus is reaching into the listener's most visceral emotions to help them feel the necessity of obedience and readiness? Well, now that we have a summary of the parable in our own language, let's put together a thesis to distill this passage of Scripture into one simple truth. I think this is just a helpful practice. This is our biblical truth for today. To be ready for Christ's sudden return, we must, be, we must diligently fulfill the duties God has entrusted to us. Simple enough, right? To be ready for Christ's sudden return, we must diligently fulfill the duties that God has entrusted to us. What from today's scripture supports me putting this truth up here? We'll have two supporting truths. Let me read verses 35 to 37 again. That'll help us. 35 to 37. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. And then Jesus also says in 42, and the Lord, and the Lord said, this is, a, this is about the managers of the servants, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom, whom the master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Our first supporting truth is this. Write this down if you're writing down notes. To be ready for the return of Jesus, we must remain vigilant and we must be diligent. To be ready for the return of Jesus, we must remain vigilant and we must be diligent. This was originally, when I first started writing this, two points, but they're so intimately connected I combined them. Now remember, we are the servants who are to be vigilant and diligent. Being vigilant is a state of mind. It's a state of our hearts, a state of mind. But servants have work to fulfill too, right? So we need to be vigilant and diligent. They're not just sitting around. These servants are just sitting around doing nothing and waiting. They're servants. They're serving. The imagery that you see here, stay dressed for action, literally reads, let your loins be girded. Kind of a funny way to talk in our language, isn't it? But servants wore long robes in these days, and to be ready to run, they would tuck their robes into their belts, freeing up their legs to run, and that's called girding your loins. So we need to be ready for action, ready to obey God's will, the master's will. And the second image at the very beginning of this passage, keep your lamps lit, is a picture of staying awake, being at the ready. The reason is that Jesus could come back at any time, and even late into the night, figuratively speaking. There's a small section of this parable that mentions a thief. And the thief is Jesus too. It's kind of confusing. Jesus adds the thief into this parable as a way to describe the suddenness of Christ's return. 
He's mixing metaphors here, but he gets his point across. In the same way that a thief comes without announcing himself, so Jesus will return when we don't expect him. So we need to be ready at all times. The truth is, church, it is so easy to be lulled to sleep when we should be wide awake with anticipation. Anybody else feel that way? Of course, Jesus isn't speaking literally here when he says that we need to stay awake during all the watches of the night. We literally need sleep, we need Sabbath, we need rest, biblical things that we need here. But church, our attention is far too easily diverted. Our desperation to see sin and evil die is made dull by far too meager of pleasures. Our allegiance to Jesus is treasonous, really, when lust's immodest gaze turns our way, or when greed's insatiable appetite groans in our chest, or when hate's burning fire ignites in our hearts. Our hearts just want to satisfy those urges, don't they? Are we so easily distracted with lesser pleasures and temporary satisfaction that giving in to these temptations, you know, satisfies, that we forget to put our attention where it rightfully belongs? The answer to that is yes. Did you know that the master of the house in this parable, whose name is Jesus, has quite literally removed, torn the curtain that separates our gaze from the source of eternal life and eternal pleasure. Did you know that Jesus has not only made it possible for us to see God in Scripture and experience the Holy Spirit in our hearts, but he will one day come again and bring you and I directly to him physically in God's presence. And meanwhile, meanwhile, I get distracted by a problem that I'm having in my crawl space. (laughs) Honestly, it's embarrassing. (laughs) And it should be embarrassing for us all how easily we get distracted, right? Church, we must remain vigilant despite all the distractions that assail us. The reality of the imminent return of Jesus is one of the most motivating factors of the Christian life. So we need to remain vigilant. Our Lord, our Savior, our Master will one day return and we don't know when. We've talked about vigilance, but let's be clear about diligence. We'll spend a little bit of time here. In this parable, Jesus says that we will be blessed if he finds us awake and diligently working, right? And when we hear that, we can start to compare ourselves with other people's work that they do every day, right? So we're wondering 
what we'll be find do, found doing when, when Jesus returns. That's the natural implication of understanding this text. What will we be doing when Jesus returns? Will we please him? And we can begin to think that if only my work was X, I'd please God. If, if only I was in, say, full-time ministry, I'd be doing something meaningful all the time. That's what people think. And if only I had a greater purpose in my job, I'd, I'd be satisfied, maybe he'd be pleased with me. If only I enjoyed what I do more, then it might be easier to please God. But, unless you are disobeying God's command for your life, you don't necessarily need to upend your life and vocation to please the Lord at his return. Here is what we need. Listen carefully. This is what we need. We need to fix our gaze on that future day with such a vivid and biblical imagination that we attend to all of our seemingly insignificant duties with such intentionality and purpose that we are able to see the immense significance of all of our dull and plodding moments. Why is there significance in our dull moments and in our daily tasks? I'll tell you why. It's because the master has called you to do them. The master has called you to do them. The life of a Christian is a life of diligent allegiance to Christ. And King Jesus transforms our insignificant daily duties into noble callings. I don't think we understand how much this has impacted our hearts, this way that we have kind of sensationalized the Christian life to where we need to do something special for Jesus. So let me describe to you some duties that Christ would be pleased to find you doing at his return. See what happens in your heart when I list these out. Christ would be pleased to find you changing a baby's diaper or typing an equation into a spreadsheet at work or replacing a cabinet at your client's house, John. Christ could return to judge the quick and the dead, as we often say, while you're taking the kids home from school or while you're on a mission trip. Wouldn't that be nice, right? Or raking the leaves in the backyard or during a Bible study or just reconciling the checkbook. And none of these duties are less pleasing to Jesus than others if God has called you to do them through your life circumstances. Make no mistake, God calls us to do things through our life circumstances too. It's not just this supernatural thing that happens. And he's called us to do a lot of these things I just listed. Jesus would be pleased to find you doing any of these things because vigilance is a state of mind that we can have at any time and diligence can be applied to any task. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. 
Praise the Lord in all that you do. We need to desensationalize the Christian life, to realize that a faithful Christian life can be had by all people in all vocations at any point in life, sensational or dull. Amen? So when you read, blessed is that servant whose master finds him so doing when he comes, do you think that you must be doing something impressive at that point? Like you need to be in China smuggling Bibles into a closed country or, or planting a church or in the middle of sharing the gospel with your neighbor and if you're not in the middle of it, God won't know. Is that the feeling you get in your chest when you read that scripture? Because it shouldn't be. Do you realize that in this passage, He's just talking about the managers feeding the servants at the proper time. So let this be a life-changing truth for you if you need to hear it. Jesus might be no more pleased if he returned to find you faithfully evangelizing your neighbor than he would be faithfully serving your family or faithfully charging your client's bill with integrity or faithfully taking care of your aging parents. God can be glorified in our daily life with diligence. <clears throat> as long as he has called you to do it, that's what he wants to see you doing when he returns. We are all servants in God's kingdom. We are not CEOs and entrepreneurs. We're servants. That's what we are. The king gives purpose to your duties. And that's a good thing. He would consider you a vigilant servant, diligently doing his will if you were fulfilling his commands on your life, great or small. Church, we need to learn to see the dignity and nobility of any task the Lord has called us to. <clears throat> do the work God has called you to do with vigilance. Do them with expectation that Christ could come at any moment. As the words of scripture, stage rest and ready for service. Keep your lamps lit into the late watches of the night. But there is another side to this parable that we cannot ignore. <clears throat> Let's read verses 45 through 48. 45 through 48. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk... The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready and act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given. Of him much will be required and from him to whom were they entrusted much, they will demand all the more. <clears throat> so our second supporting truth is this again write this down if you're taking notes number two there will be a day when we will be judged it's not a truth many of us like to hear according to the American way of living we are our own master you know but the truth of scripture says that we will be judged one day there will be a reckoning and we have no idea when that reckoning will happen. This passage of scripture, I'm gonna be honest, it's concerning to me. 
Because according to my reading and every commentary I studied in preparation, this passage is talking about judgment of servants to the punishment of hell. Some even see this as description of degrees of punishment in hell. And even more concerning to me is the fact that some managers of the servants who are teachers like the elders and I are at risk of the harshest judgment. But even those who did not know the command of the master and did what deserved a beating, they would also receive a beating. It would just be a light one or a lighter one. The principle Jesus is describing is this. Our degree of knowledge and understanding determines our degree of culpability. I'm going to say that in some different ways as we go along. We like to say that sin deserves the same, all sin deserves the same punishment, but that's actually not true. God considers not only the evil deeds done, but he determines the degree of punishment based on whether we knew better or not, or whether the servants were uh, given more opportunity than another, and whether they were given more authority than another, and whether we stewarded that authority in obedience. Some servants who knew better and had more authority are cut up and placed with the unrighteous. Some servants who knew better and had less authority received a harsh beating, and then some servants who were ignorant of the master's command but did what was wrong, they received a light beating. It's kind of uncomfortable sounding. J.C. Ryle, whom we've quoted a lot because his commentary is fantastic on this book, says that the greater a man's religious light is, the greater is his guilt if he is not converted. Jesus himself spells out in verse 48, and I believe, this is the new, I believe the New Living Translation actually says this really well. When someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. This passage should concern all of us. You have sat under the faithful teaching of God's commands at least as long as you have been attending Grace on the Ashley. And that means that you know the master's command if you've been attending this place and this community. So you will be judged at least more than the one who does not know the God's commands. So pay attention to this key truth. We must understand it. We've talked about vigilance and diligence. Being vigilant is the result of knowing the truth. Being diligent is the result of doing the tr what the truth requires. If we are vigilant without being diligent, you are at risk of being a hearer of God's word without being a doer of God's word as James 1 describes. And this is how Jesus himself describes this phenomenon in Matthew 15. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah speak of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Church, we must not only be hearers of God's word. We must be doers of God's word. 
Doing God's word is important because though good works and obedience don't actually save us because they're a free gift from God, salvation is a free gift of God's grace, our works and, and obedience, they certainly prove the validity of our faith. If we are saved by grace through faith, but our faith does not cause us to obey Christ, our faith is no faith at all. Commence the heart check. These servants in the parable, many of them knew the master's command and ignored it, or they presumed they had time, or did what pleased themselves, and many of them that did not obey God's command knew what they were supposed to do and did not obey. And by doing so, many who claimed to be the servants of the master proved themselves to be actually enemies. We should ask of ourselves, is this us every time we read this warning? The great day of judgment will lay bare the truth of our faith. J.I. Packer in his book Concise Theology says, those whose professed faith, get this, this is a, a professed faith. Those whose professed faith did not express itself in a new lifestyle marked by hatred of sin and works of loving service to God and others will be lost. Knowledge of future judgment is always a summons to present repentance. Only the penitent will be prepared for the judgment when it comes. My word, this is sobering, is it not? If we look at our own lives and our own obedience, it is sobering. True faith, true penitence, continues on from, from knowing God's word to doing it. From know, knowledge to trust and action, from believing in God to proving it with our lives. To put it simply, God's measure of true faith is to put your money where your mouth is, figuratively speaking. We must spend our faith on trust in God. We must extend our knowledge of the truth to the extent that we act on the truth. If we know the master is returning, do the commands of the master and please the master. If you do not, make no mistake, you will find yourself being cut up and cast with the unrighteous or receiving a beating. You and I, we know the commands of the master if we've been attending this church. Take care to obey. Stay dressed for service, church. Keep your lamps lit in the late watches of the night. But take heart. We will all give an account at the judgment of mankind. But if we are vigilant servants and we are diligent servants, proving the salvation we have been gifted by Jesus, the master will return and he will do something for us 
that is unprecedented. Trent Butler, a writer of a commentary, describes Christ's kindness like this. For those who are ready, what a surprise. No barking of commands, no extra burden of work. Instead, it is a role reversal. The servants will lie down at the table ready to eat, and the master will put on the servants' clothes, prepare the food, and serve the servants. (laughs) Church, Christ has determined that there will be an end to our labor. That's a motivating factor, too. There will be a return to the, to the Garden of Eden. The Bible will go full circle from the Garden of Eden to the sin that came into the world and destruction and all of mankind's confusion and terror, and then he will make all things right and we will end up back in God's presence. There's going to be an end to our labor. There will be a day when we will sit after having diligently served, and we will attend our own wedding feast where the church, the bride of Christ, and Jesus is the bridegroom, and he will serve us. He served us once already, shedding his blood for our sins. He will one day serve us again, but instead of blood, he will serve us wine. Just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said he would not drink of the vine again until that great feast. And on that day, he will serve us and then he will down the wine himself. And I can imagine him drinking it in such a way, with such joy that we may hearken back to David's undignified dance and joy of the Lord. The great servant king, the one who gives noble duties to lowly servants like you and I, the one who judges the world in righteousness and deserves to be the king, the one that says the first shall be last and the last shall be first. This servant king will one day serve his servants, ennobling them, us, with an inheritance that only the son deserves. Church, we have an exhortation to heed. Will we prove our belief in the reality of that coming day? Will we live in light of that great reckoning that is coming? Will we accept the free gift of salvation and respond in vigilance and diligence, or will we choose to dull our senses with self-serving pleasures and vain pursuits? Quite close to our hearts, will we as Christians abuse the grace of God by continuing in unrepentant sin only to find that we never trusted God's grace to muster obedience? Because there is grace for salvation 
and there is grace for acting in obedience. His grace is an overflowing fountain, so don't stop drinking when you profess faith. Keep drinking the grace of Jesus Christ into obedience into his calling. Do not underestimate the grace of God. Now I want to address a response that you might have to this passage of scripture and the sermon that I've presented. You may hear the sermon and respond in distress. I think that might possibly be a good thing. We need a level of concern over the disharmony we produce when we proclaim faith in Jesus and still harbor ongoing sin. There's a tension there we should feel. The correct response is concern that leads to confession and repentance. But I want to recall the passage of this preceding this parable. It was taught by Pastor Greg at the picnic. Do not be anxious. If God provides food for the birds, he will provide you with the motivation to be a diligent servant. Just ask and obey. If he clothed the flowers of the field with beautiful garments, he will clothe you in the righteousness of his son. Just ask and obey. Seek his kingdom. And these necessary things for faith in Jesus, knowledge for vigilance, duty for diligence, these things will be added to you. Remember, do not be anxious. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Make your treasure Jesus. Make his return the picture of joy and motivation in our life. Make the good news of, of Jesus Christ your motivation to turn from sin. If you trust in the good gifts of the master, if you trust in his good character to serve the servants, this truth will produce joy that is necessary for vigilance and diligence. But there is a difference between legitimate concern and unnecessary anxiety. Anxiety exaggerates problems and diminishes and underestimates God's ability and character to solve them. Genuine and legitimate concern, on the other hand, comes from a realistic look at the problem and turns our eyes to the solution whose name is Jesus Christ, amen? through his death and through his resurrection for, for us. The truth of scripture about our sinful state should produce concern, but the enemy will try to tip you into anxiety. Trust the truth of scripture instead. Jesus saves us from our sinful condition by his death and his resurrection. The return of Jesus is imminent. 
We need to continually repent of sin. Christ will one day come to judge all of us, and the character of our king should motivate us to repentance and to obedience. Church, consider what it was like when Carissa and I arrived home and my son met us with a joyful smile on his faith after having completed his work. May that be you and I on the day of Christ's return. I long for that for you. We, as pastors and elders, long to see you smiling at the day of Christ's return. It's our goal here. That's why we push you. That's why we speak the truth to you. That's why we don't mince words when we speak the truth of God's word. Because we need you to know what is necessary to trust and have faith in Jesus. To be ready for Christ's sudden return, we must diligently fulfill the duties that God has entrusted to us. Stay dressed for service. Keep your lamp lit into the late watches of the night. Let's pray. Father, your son gave us a very sobering passage today. He gave his disciples a parable that described what was necessary for faith and for receiving that good gift. That we should receive the free gift of God's grace and then prove it with our obedience to your son and with vigilance at his return. I pray that you would help us not to tip into anxiety, but to be concerned legitimately over the, over the sin that we harbor in our lives. Because all of us are sinful people. All of us struggle with sin. But your spirit lives and resides in us because Jesus promised it. And I pray that you would help us to turn from sin at every, at every opportunity and help us to love Jesus more than our own selves. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.